0: Hi Sharon,
1: How are, you? are you good? <laughs> yep, I can hear you. Can you
0: hear me well? Yep, so so far so good <laughs> until Perfect. three comes around and everything crashes. Some, I don't know, my phone is going to decide to do some crazy update or something. <laughs> yeah, I,
1: I, I mean, it can happen and then it happens, it's fine. <laughs> Yeah, we'll start in like four minutes or so. Let's give people time to arrive. And um, Yeah, yeah, and then we'll start. Sorry, Gilbert, I was pinging people in. How are you? Thanks for coming. Uh, Gilbert, meet uh, Sharon. Sharon, meet Gilbert. He's one of our team members that help uh, with the Science Society around here. So Hello, everybody. Nice to everybody. meet,
0: you. Nice to hi, meet you, too. It's a pleasure.
1: Yeah, hi. I'm
0: looking forward to your talk. Uh, yeah, a um, bit nervous, never done something like this, quite like this before, so it should be interesting. Hopefully, if it will be memorable, it will be in a good way.
2: Yeah, think of it as an as a extended phone call, <laughs> I guess, that helps.
0: <laughs> Where I talk mostly to myself half the time, but okay.
2: Don't worry, we'll keep you company.
0: <laughs> Thank you.
1: Okay, I think we can slowly start. I'll introduce you to the audience and then um, and then we'll go from there. So um, welcome to the Science Society. Um, we have a really great um, um, guest speaker today. Um, welcome Dr. Uh, Sharon Morin. Uh, thank you so much for coming. And let me in tell you a little bit um, about her um, dr. Sharon Maureen, she is um, at the School of Psychology and Sport science and Leah Rushkin University Cambridge in the UK and um, she did her bachelor and master uh, in cognitive, in cognitive psychology at the University of Ben israel and her master and phd of psychology at the university of british columbia canada and um yeah now she is a senior fellow of the higher education academy um yeah she does really a lot of very interesting research and um so it's a pleasure to have you here today and uh, I'm excited to learn about um, your research. But before we we start with um, the paper and the research itself, we um, ask uh, the question about if there was any specific moment or how you um, got an interest in going into this field, becoming a
0: scientist and uh, doing this research yeah so first of all thank you for having me and yeah that's a really really difficult question so i don't know how far back to go because one of my best friends actually has a document where apparently i said i wanted to be a researcher when i was 16 but i i remember wanting to be a graphic designer so i you know like many people i kind of stumbled into into research i was always really really curious and i think for me curiosity is is one of the drivers of just wanting to figure out what is going on when you see a puzzle when you see something that you don't fully understand you kind of you know even if you're going somewhere you don't know and it's like what's around the corner there let me just go check what's around that corner and what's around that corner and then before you know it you you know you've you've gone down some some kind of crazy path to some place nobody's ever seen or or you know or seems like nobody's ever been here before so so that's kind of why i do what i do to some levels specifically i started out in experimental psychology and cognitive neuroscience so looking at cognitive processes in the brain sort of you know um, how we make our decisions how memory works how we attend to different things how we allocate attention Um, but very quickly i started stumbling into more clinical domains because Some of this really matters when when they don't, you know, when these processes don't work very well. Um, And that's kind of where a lot of the the, the key issues that we don't understand are. So so I ended up increasingly uh, stumbling into, first it was neurological conditions, uh, so people who had strokes or brain injury, and then increasingly into uh, people with mental health issues where there were uh, potential Some of the potential reasons why uh, they encountered difficulties was because they had some problem with their, their cognitive functioning, or maybe their brains worked in a slightly different way compared to other people. And that could explain some of how, you know, they're, what, how they're experiencing their symptoms. Um, yeah. And then I kind of got stuck there. (laughs) There's so much to figure out. Yeah. I, I,
1: I'm also a puzzle person, <laughs> like solving puzzle person. That's so interesting to hear. Um yeah, thank you for that. Um I think it's always interesting to hear like why people got into the field and you know, sometimes it's just random but sometimes it's like people plan it really so it's it's interesting. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And um yeah the stage is yours to talk about your research a little bit. Thank you.
0: Okay, so so thank you and deep breath. And I guess I'll, I'll start with quite a bit of background and then hopefully why we did what we did and why kind of what we think is cool about it or interesting about it will become kind of apparent. So I'm going to provide some background. So apologies if, if you know this and if you don't know it and it's maybe a bit too advanced, rest assured there's plenty online to explore. But uh, this this research comes about from a, a, a general interest in mental health and in mental health or in, you know, in psychiatry, uh, I'll, I'll use the two terms interchangeably. Some people don't like so much the term psychiatry, but, you know, in the day to day, they do overlap a lot. So in, in that area, we we kind of like to compartmentalize and categorize. And I think that's that's kind of. a uh, a property that humans have, right? Even if you think about biology, or you think about anything, we like to make order in the disorder. Uh, uh, Disorder in this context mean being the mess of life, the complexities of life. And so that's true. Also, when you go into a clinic, and people come and they complain about different aspects of you know, why they have problems with with their mental health. And obviously, uh, a lot of work has gone into that from a clinical domain over over decades, if not centuries. And out of that work um, comes this categorization process. And we use something called the DSM, this Diagnostic Statistic Manual, but the idea it's a book. And in the book, there's kind of, you know, it's a bit like a dictionary, encyclopedia, there's lists of various disorders. And if you have somebody complain about A, B, and C, and D, and you kind of look under that category, and you know, if it has A, B, C, and D, you know that person, probably uh, has a label of X, whatever uh, the condition may be. So it's kind of medicalized, but trying to make uh, you know, the mess of everyday life and, and kind of the complexities you see in the clinic to make it orderly. And then we use labels and labels are really, really powerful. They're really useful. So for example, one label that we can use is uh, somebody has a particular disorder, let's say OCD. I'm actually using a condition that isn't in this paper directly, but is kind of lurking in the background and an instigator for some of this. So OCD is obsessive compulsive disorder. It's a condition where uh, people are characterized by having unwanted, intrusive, really distressing obsessions. And they also perform rituals that are kind of rigid and they're compelled to do them for hours every day called compulsions. And in this uh, DSM book, this categorization manual, um, you had a certain kind of properties of if somebody uh, complains of this, that, and the other, they have OCD. And one of the sub kinds of OCD was hoarding. Um, That means that if somebody comes into clinic and they have hoarding, it's seen as a subtype of OCD. So you couldn't have hoarding without actually coming under this umbrella of OCD. Now, one of the things about this categorization process is that it's uh, a work in progress. So in 2013, DSM-5 came out, so obviously there were four previous editions and nobody thinks there won't be DSM-6 around the corner. So people are already talking about the next version and it's not the universal one. There's another system called the ICD and it's very, very similar though, uh, in its approach to many of these things. And so hoarding was under this umbrella of OCD. And that that means that how we conceptualize it from a research perspective, but also from a clinical perspective. So if you had this condition, you would go to this kind of clinic to seek help. And people would give you these kinds of medications because they work for OCD. And, And hoarding was kind of the odd one out. So when a patient with OCD and hoarding or, you know, hoarding comes into the clinic, people are like, uh, you know, we, they're probably not going to respond quite so well to our treatments. they they kind of stick out, they don't fit in. And that, that has been ongoing and of course, uh, kind of received increasing attention. Um, but even as far back as maybe, uh, 13, 14 years ago, Clinicians really thought that if you had hoarding, you you came under this umbrella of OCD, you couldn't have hoarding without OCD. Um, But increasingly, so there has been research into hoarding specifically, increasingly people figured out that actually, um, that's a thing that you can have hoarding without OCD. And in fact, most people with hoarding don't have OCD. It's true there's overlap between the two, and a lot of people with OCD do have hoarding, and a lot of people with hoarding do have OCD. As much as even a third uh, would qualify for the the other condition, but that means that a majority won't have obsessions and compulsions, and they don't. There's a reason they didn't fit in there, and that's kind of almost like the ugly duckling story. I expect many people know about, you know, where where the ugly duckling. Sorry, the ugly duckling didn't belong, not because he, was, he didn't fit in, because he wasn't a duck, he was a swan. And in a sense, it's a similar story where in 2013, when they did the, the fifth revision, they said, okay, actually it merits its own category. We're going to give this uh, a condition its own label. So now we have hoarding disorder. And that only happened in 2013, which if you think about, isn't that long ago. And one of the good things about that, is that now you can divert attention, you can divert uh, you know, new ways of thinking, funding, or how you approach patients. It, it kind of instigates and, and sort of invigorates our understanding or, or the potential for our understanding. So, so that's a bit of the background in terms of how, how the field operates, where you have these labels and they're kind of distinct. Uh, and it really helps from a clinical perspective. But on the other hand, you know, there's pluses and minuses in everything, giving these labels and compartmentalizing and categorizing uh, things does kind of miss the day to day problem where you get people who have multiple symptoms from, you know, multiple categories. And yes, you get patients with classic hoarding or classic ADHD or classic something, but you also get people that have, you know, a bit of this and some of the other, or a lot of this but maybe some some aspects of the other. So you could have people with OCD and they wouldn't really have hoarding, but they would have elements of it, you know. So so they don't have hoarding disorder and OCD, but they have, you know, mix and match of flavors almost. Uh, and that's where kind of this research started to. To appear, and that's actually coming out of the hoarding disorder literature. And um, I'm going to talk a little bit about what hoarding is now, and then I'll kind of maybe justify why actually it made total sense not to look at people who hoard, but to go and look at people with ADHD. So hoarding itself um, has been studied. Certainly, you know, I'm sure you know if anybody's into literature and and sort of you know stuff, it's it's. It's been part and parcel of humanity for, for centuries, if not longer. And, but in the 70s, sort of psychologists really started to look at it systematically and carefully. And they kind of characterized three components to uh, what we would call a full blown hoarding disorder. One is difficulty discarding. So, this is this idea that you, you can't part with your possessions. So the word difficulty here, you know, it's not just having a bit of difficulty. It's serious difficulty, as in you cannot part with things. Um, It's really distressing. It's impairing. Like you can't can't do it. Um, Another one is clutter, and this is a key one. Um, Clutter to the, you know, a lot of us, and this is another thing. When we talk about mental health conditions, you can envision every symptom or every characteristic as as being along a continuum. So when I talk about clutter, a lot of you might be going, well, you know, I've got some cl- some of that in my life, you know, I'm, I'm maybe I could definitely do with, um, you know, organizing my closet or, or you know, going through the paperwork on my desk, which I say as I stare at the mess um, I'm going to deal with on the weekend. Um, And you can envision it along a continuum where some people don't have any clutter in their lives and some people certainly, you know, many people could certainly do with less of it, but we're really talking about the extreme end here. So when I mean clutter, I mean, you can't use your your room for what it was meant to. So you can't use your kitchen because the surfaces have stuff on them. You can't sit on in your living room or entertain people because there's stuff there, you can't sleep in your bed. Maybe you can't use your, your bathroom. So, so quite extreme levels here when I talk about clutter um, and then finally so we talked about difficulty discarding we talked about clutter and the final one which is a bit of a, a sort of secondary a bit con- a bit more controversial than the other two is uh, excessive accumulation so it means accumulating too much stuff now how you go about it whether you're buying it could be collecting things off the street it could be just hanging on to anything you you or or anyone you know, ever received. So it's very vague in how it is. But the, the those are the kind of the three cardinal aspect. Um, and I have to say there there's also a, an emotional component here. So again, many people would resonate with um, difficulty discarding. So I don't know if any of you have um, some childhood toy, or maybe you have a child who has a childhood, you know, some kind of toy or some kind of possession, and they grew out of it, and you're still clinging on to it. For sentimental reasons. So again, it's that issue of continuum where a lot of people can resonate with that, but it's not impairing. Like it doesn't actually disrupt your life. It's a continuum. And but the people that actually have hoarding disorder, all these things are to such an extreme uh level that we're talking that their life is so much less or having this condition. That means they can't either work or socialize or or do stuff you know it causes no end of tension and distress uh to their life and that's kind of why even though so many of us can maybe resonate with some of these universal themes we wouldn't qualify for having the full-blown disorder um so going back to this emotional aspect um you know we talk about sort of you know why why do they do what they do in part you know it's not entirely clear but different people, different reasons, part of it is this strong emotional need, this attachment to possessions. And when we try to understand a condition, so a lot of this context is, okay, so, so how do we end up knowing what we know about people with hoarding disorder? So obviously, uh, historically, because of this link with OCD, a lot of it is through people who have OCD and hoarding, or people who, who came under this, this umbrella of OCD um so it's people that came to clinic and said you know i have a problem i need help Uh, we also can find people who self-identify again but through um support groups so they don't actually go to a clinic or to some kind of doctor they or or psychologist. they they go to support groups or or, you know join some kind of forum online and that's great so again they self-identify as having a problem a third way that you can find these people is actually by family members, and when you when it comes to hoarding, you can think in, in the UK we have something called the council, so kind of how the the people that you know are in charge of the city. Um, and in extreme cases with hoarding, you have um, a fire hazard. It, it becomes a health and safety issue. You can think rodent infestations, insects, um, you know, not being able to leave a house. So so the fire uh, fighters or you know that, those kinds of people come in and, and neighbors lot that uh, they'll have knock on effects. So, so these people don't necessarily come forward with a problem, but they get um, sort of, you know, flagged by somebody to say they require help and something needs to change here. And that kind of brings up uh, the issue of insight. So in hoarding specifically, we know that insight is a thing. So as I said, there's definitely people who who think they have a problem and they go seek help for it, but there's a sizable portion of people who would qualify for hoarding disorder, but they don't think they have a problem. Even if their family members or the neighbors say, you're a hoarder, you should, you know, do something about that. They don't see it that way. And I would say part of the challenge of, of people with this condition and working with them is, is this issue of insight. And it really is part of the condition we know that a lot of them just don't understand or there's something about how their mind works their brain works how the condition manifests where they don't see it they just genuinely don't see it and so when we come to do the research we're actually doing most of it not all of it but most of it on people who do have some level of insight um so that's an important part here so so, looking at the research that's been done, including stuff I did maybe a decade ago, you can see that time and time again, the samples, the, the, the groups of people that, that end up be, being the ones the research is done on, are mostly old by, well, I want to say old, older adults. So, averages of around late 50s, 60s, you know, and they tend to also be predominantly female, so mostly females. It's not that you don't see males, but, you, you know, 80% female, 70% female. Now, we have conditions, there are mental health conditions where there is sort of a, a, a gender skew. So, for example, in autism, there is definitely such a thing as females with autism, definitely, and it's actually overlooked a lot. But we do expect, based on a lot of evidence, to, that these groups, there's going to be more males for that. Now, there's indirect evidence from sort of very superficial, large-scale studies where hoarding is 50/50 as far as male/female kind of split goes. So, if you're going into clinic and you're going to see the support groups and it's all these females, you're like, huh, where are all the males? Like, do they particularly have, you know, worse insight? We don't know. And the other thing is, when you talk to the people who who identify as like, you know, I, I have, I'm a hoarder, I have a problem here um you say okay well when did it start so i will qualify there is uh some aspects to hoarding which can happen with dementia and then obviously it starts later in life but when you talk to the you know the people in the support groups and stuff they're like well it started in my teens when i was 20 and then you know i've I've been suffering it for for decades and you're like hang on a second If, if if everybody's sort of developing it by their early 20s why, why are we seeing just all these people in their 60s? Um, and and so that's, again, a bit of a mystery. So we think insight has something going on there. But one of my concerns is, is seriously, where are all the where are all the younger adults? Again, I mean, you know, if you're in your 20s, and you know, you're rolling your eyes, 30 is in this story, at least younger, it's younger than 50s, 60s. And, and where are all the, the males? so so that's kind of the mystery that that in my case kind of sparked the, the the instigator for why why go and do this study and the clue or the big missing piece of the puzzle here or one of the missing pieces of the puzzle is when you look at people with hoarding disorder and you talk to them they complain a lot about inattention And a lot of them anecdotally will say, I should have been, you know, now that I know about mental health and I've gone through this process, you know, with with the support group or with the, you know, with the clinical help, I I think I always had ADHD and it was never diagnosed. And, you know, they talk about their problems with inattention specifically. And what I mean by that is obviously it would be problems concentrating, but it goes a bit beyond that. We're talking about being organized, being able to plan being, uh, you know, not being distracted too much, uh, not being forgetful. So it's kind of an umbrella term. So when I use the word an attention, I kind of mean concentrating and all this other kind of related stuff. Um, and, you know, based on, on their kind of uh, stories, people have actually, other researchers have gone off and, and looked at that objectively and they're right. People with um, horning will actually have worse, uh, attentional problems on average uh, compared to control group. And this is where the ADHD comes in. So if uh, you know anything about uh, mental health, there's a condition where you know attention deficit is literally in the name and that's ADHD. So attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Let's focus here on the hyperactivity and more on the attention. Um, and You think okay so people in the hoarding literature coming out of the ocd literature are talking about a link with inattention and they're mentioning adhd and okay fair enough but we know that there's another literature and that's the one on adhd and this this speaks a little bit to that issue of compartmentalizing so when you go into the adhd literature and you're like okay do they talk about hoarding is there any link there and the answer is nothing there's absolutely no knowledge of that link so you've got a bunch of clinicians who meet talk discuss hoarding and they're like yeah there's this link with adhd and inattention. attention it's totally obvious to us and then you go to the adhd literature and there's nothing um, and of course if there's a link does it go both ways it doesn't have to so we have conditions where if you go into eating disorders clinics Thirty percent of the patients there will have OCD, but if you go into OCD clinics, you're not going to see 30% with eating disorders. So the direction isn't isn't quite symmetrical. So so it's a sort of question is if I go into an ADHD clinic and I ask about hoarding, am I going to see increased levels compared to, for example, a control group, or or not? So it was literally a sort of yes no. Do we see it there? Do we not? Is the direction Does it go both ways? Is it bi-directional, this link? Um, And that's kind of where this study came in. So all that was just, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes setting up the study. So very, it's a simple study in the sense that what we did is we went to an ADHD clinic, an adult ADHD clinic, so everybody is above 18. And um, I won't go too much into the uh, aspects of ADHD, but I'm more than happy to answer that if anybody wants to ask later um but you know people in this clinic were diagnosed with adhd they were receiving you know support uh they obviously sought help for it they were very well characterized you know they all got a diagnosis they were being followed up and, and all we did is we got permission from them to use their their clinical data as had been previously collected not by us and we also gave them a series of questionnaires so these were self-report and yes self-report will go only so far as in it can be skewed by a lot of stuff but we did try and take steps to sort of minimize you know we didn't tell them we were looking at hoarding we kind of called it something else we also didn't just ask them one or two questions or even use one or two questionnaires we kind of cross-referenced multiple questionnaires on a lot of different topics three of which were hoarding. We also asked about ADHD, we asked about perfectionism, we asked about all all sorts of other things. Uh, And the key issue is compared to a control group. So the control group underwent the exact same procedure with the same kind of recruiting materials, only they were screened carefully to not have a shred of ADHD in them. And they were matched for age, for gender, and for education. And I have to say education was a bit of a challenge because a lot of times people who come forward for research tend to be um, higher on the socioeconomic sort of scale, including education. But we really sort of went it all out and trying to match. uh, And and we did uh, match. So the two groups have sort of a relatively roughly similar background in, in various things. And then the key question is, okay, so compared to the control group, what do we see in the the people who have ADHD? Um, And what we saw was 20%, if we take multiple uh, questionnaires and we cross reference and we say, okay, if you've got a minimum of this on this questionnaire and a minimum of this on this and a minimum of here, and by the way, the thresholds that we used were all thresholds from the hoarding literature. We didn't kind of come up with anything. We just used literally the numbers that the clinicians had established as, you know, beyond this number, you have a problem. So we cross-referenced three questionnaires like that, and we ended up with 20% of the ADHD sample, which was 90 people uh, out of, uh, by the way, we invited everyone in the clinic, uh, but only a third got back. For us. this isn't unusual. Like, you're never gonna get 100% getting back to you. Hopefully, you know, that's still um, sort of, again, it is what it is, it's a bit of a limitation, but again, it's it's within reason of, of what you could expect to get back to you. Um, and as i said 20 percent are above the threshold using the exact same procedures in the control group uh, it was around one and a half two percent which is kind of what you'd expect from other studies that say how much hoarding would you expect or hoarding disorder would you expect in the general population and there's an estimate of one to three percent um so two was or two and a half was well within what you would expect uh using kind of our criteria Um, so that's kind of high, and that kind of answers the question: do you think there's a link there? Then this suggests that yes, there is a link. Um, and then you can kind of delve into it and say, Okay, well, we've got people above the threshold with ADHD, we've got people below the threshold with ADHD. The remaining 80%, you know, are they how are they different? So they weren't different in age, so everybody was in their mid-30s on average. Um, but they the people above the threshold were more depressed and they reported. Uh, not to us, but to the clinic, lower quality of life across a whole bunch of, of indices. Um, and then looking at the people, the remaining 80%. So these people don't have hoarding disorder, or probably unlikely to have hoarding disorder. Um, how do they compare to the controls? And the answer is they're still worse off. You know, so so thinking back to this idea that that all the symptoms that we experience are along a continuum. I would say that they're a bit more to the you know to the higher level than other people all again as a group all things considered and then we also looked at associations so what uh measures that we captured what things are associated with hoarding which ones would predict hoarding Um, and inattention sticks out like a sore thumb so so that was again pointing to this link that people saw in in the hoarding in, in the hoarding community you see it coming from this other direction from the adhd community and then just to again you know try and and, and look at how stable or robust or you know how repli- replicable this is um kind of one of the things that i do in my research sometimes is i look in patient samples but we know so many of these properties or characteristics are on a continuum so that means if i look just in the general population and i don't screen out i don't take only people that are super healthy and never reported any problems ever you just take you know normal everyday people you're you're expecting to see a continuous continuum of you know any property that you care to look at so that should be true for hoarding as well and so what we did is we ended up Uh, recruiting another 220 people, again, using the same kind of information going through the same procedure. And this time, instead of just comparing groups, we said, Okay, what what predicts what is what is associated with hoarding, and again, an attention came up, which again, if you were looking from the, the hoarding side of things, you'd be like, yeah, that's totally obvious. But if you're looking from the place where we we use these inattention scales, it's the ADHD clinic. It's like, ha, huh, okay, so that that replicated again. Um, now I'll I'll just end with with some of the stuff we didn't do, but is is kind of the the next piece of the puzzle, and that is why why is there an association? Why would you think that people who have difficulty with with these kind of uh, Cognitive abilities, you know, organizing, planning, concentrating, being distracted. Why would would that be associated with hoarding? And I think on some level, it makes sense, by the way, um, you know, you anecdotally talk to people, their stories. Obviously, if you if you find it difficult to 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 be organized again, it's on a continuum. So it's not that everybody who has difficulties being organized is necessarily having ADHD, not at all, far from it. Again, to qualify for, for ADHD, you'd have to have significant impairment in your life. Uh, you know, that so we're talking realistically three to 4% of the population at most. Um, and you know, if you have difficulties with these things, well, of course, clutter, you know, it, it's not surprising that your house is going to be cluttered. And I, you know, I have friends who, who have ADHD and yes, their house tends to be a bit of a mess to say the least. Um, so clutter is there what's not entirely clear. And and again, uh, you know, excessive accumulation, you can say, Okay, these people kind of, you know, it's difficult to plan ahead, maybe they buy too much, or it's difficult to carry out sort of, you know, level headed decisions, you know, in a kind of peace, uh, you know, peaceful, well planned organized manner. So So yes, you can see that that kind kind of might feed into it. Um, But then what about the difficulty discarding? So that could be maybe that, you know, just like I'm planning to allocate some time this weekend and go through the absolute mess of paperwork that I'm looking at right now, you have difficulties planning, you can't manage your time. Of course, that's gonna be a challenge. And you know, we know that the procrastination is is, is kind of a thing as well with ADHD. So, so again, not terribly surprising. So you can see that there is some aspects that it would make sense why this link exists. We don't know, this is pure speculation at this point. Um, but there's another piece here and that's the emotional aspect Uh, as i said people with hoarding often it gets triggered by adverse life events so this idea again not for everyone but many times you have people that um will, will report you know some kind of trauma in their lives and it's it's really a broad term it could be anything from uh you know i don't know sexual assault but it can be something like moving school when you were younger and it was really difficult you could have been in a car accident so so the it's the broadest kind of term possible but it does mean that that person experienced something that they perceived as very adverse and very distressing at some stage in their life and and that tends to be reported by people in retrospect so you know you're looking at that 60-year-old person who, who came to the support group for hoarding, and they're telling you that, you know, this is what they experienced in their lives, and, and that's sort of a very strong emotional component. And they were kind of, you know, very strongly attached to possessions. And there's one or two pieces of, of research; it's really under research, but in AD, in children with ADHD. So it hasn't, to, to the best of my knowledge, there's nothing. In adults with ADHD, but in children with ADHD, somebody did go and interview, found and interviewed uh, parents with children who who have hoarding issues, and they did report very strong emotional attachment to objects. So, if there is, and we don't know yet, a very strong emotional attachment to objects in adults who have ADHD and have hoarding issues, it's not clear to me what is going on there, and that's something that. It would be great for for, you know me or somebody else to, to try and figure out so i'm gonna stop there um and i hope i've told you a story that makes sense and was vaguely interesting yeah thank you so much
1: it's really interesting um um i really love it and i really like that you go um through this so systematically, and also um, taking the emotional part into consideration. And um, I, I've done some OCD research in the past, but more from a uh, electrophysiology, you know, cellular type of uh, context. So, um, I think it's really interesting that all of these disorders that seem to be kind of connected have a dopamine level um issue. Um I think that, that's that's an you know that's a that's a really interesting topic. Um and, and did you or are you planning on maybe looking into why why there's so many more females um either do you think they only come forward or because kind of they live maybe even later in life more in a family context and males maybe, you know, live by themselves and nobody like brings them to come to the doctor or is it really that it's such a difference between male
0: and female? Sorry. Oh, yeah. So, great question. Um, answer is i'm not entirely sure so so yeah you kind of picked up on two potential uh things taking place there one is the sort of societal norms where maybe um society and the immediate social environment and the physical environment where males tend to find themselves as more forgiving um you know we, we definitely um have talked to people who hoard and they you know the males who talk about their wife and their family putting up with them And maybe for women, um, that level of putting up with you is, is, is maybe not quite so, so fast, you know, again, terrible stereotypes, but you know, these stereotypes are, are based on something. So, so that's one aspect where yes, it could be that societal pressures and how people are, are exposed to what's normal or what's expected of them will tip females into it. Now we know in general that females tend to often seek more help than males again, whether that's society playing a role, probably, I don't know if exclusively. So so yes, um, you know, environment matters here. Um, it could also be that there's something about how the disorder manifests. So something about insight and how it works in males may genuinely be playing also a role. I don't know yet to tell you that yeah when i think about
1: it i you know all of these since it's a little bit like they have kind of a dopamine level um underlying mechanisms that are um kind of aberrant so um you know parkinson is also more prevalent in males but that doesn't because parkinson you have basically dopamine um for everyone that dopamine cells kind of die and um, but that doesn't like that connection doesn't really make too much sense for sense for me because ADHD and so on also see a decreased level in dopamine but due to a different mechanism. It's more that their dopamine transporter density is different and it basically it's more active um, lower levels of dopamine and not more you know, passive due to uh dying neurons
0: yeah so i not i, sure I think you said, a
1: connection
0: yeah so you, you touched on like i was like oh i have to say this and i have to say this so you touched on so many cool aspects of it so one thing i wanted to say about places like you mentioned ocd specifically and gender differences and mechanisms so even in a condition like ocd where we kind of know it's 50 50 roughly um there are consistent differences between the genders so so ocd for example um there's an early peak where it onsets so you see a peak kind of around eight to ten years old where where you know people start having symptoms of ocd it's like there's a peak around eight to to eleven years old and that's males mostly and then there's another peak uh i think like late teens early 20s and that's predominantly female so again it's not that you wouldn't have people from the other uh, gender, but that's an important difference. And I don't think it's due to culture or environment. I think there's something biological happening. So even when within a condition, you have different um, mechanisms or different ways to uh, end up developing it. And you mentioned dopamine, and, and I wanted to mention this, again, this theme of, of trans diagnostic, uh, everything. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not the only person to to notice how compartmentalized and, and you know, uh, the the whole approach to mental health has been and there's been a, a huge kind of almost paradigm shift in, in this domain, uh, working towards different ways of viewing mental health, and organizing kind of making sense and order of, the, of this mess of the disorder that, that we envision. And that's taking a more trans diagnostic approach. And that's looking at mechanisms rather than looking at the mechanism just in it, like dopamine matters for ADHD. And then maybe somebody else going and saying, okay, dopamine matters for OCD and and so forth, but rather saying, okay, dopamine matters for all these conditions, maybe the mechanism by which it matters is the same. Maybe it isn't, maybe it within a condition, you know, there are multiple ways in which dopamine can, uh, be involved. So we're taking, you know, beyond any particular diagnosis, we're, we're looking at it much more. I guess in a broader way. I, I don't know if that kind of speaks to what you were saying.
1: Yeah, it makes sense. So actually I didn't want to bring up you know, my stuff um, at all, but back as uh, a postdoc, I looked at OCD in a different way, or I tried to look at it, um, but because you mentioned the emotional part, so our theory was um, that uh, for OCD, we wanted to test it. if an emotional priming can turn a behavior into an OCD-like behavior. Of course, we did that in animals, so maybe it has nothing to do with what happens in humans. But <laughs> anyways, uh, so what what I did was um with uh optogenetic simulations that where you use like light to stimulate a neurons very specific type of neurons in specific regions. we simulated the input of the amygdala at the same time uh, the animals were performing a behavior to kind of basically imitate the emotional priming or emotional part. Uh, It's probably way oversimplified, but it seemed to be working um, relatively well if it was in a timely manner um which I found is really interesting that you bring that emotional part in it because I think as you said, there may be many ways of getting this disorders and what's going on in the brain underneath. It's probably very different. So um, yeah, that's really interesting that you mentioned that. Um do you think do you do you think that there would be maybe a difference between males and females of like the emotional part um of it like
0: did you see a difference there maybe so we didn't have enough power like we didn't really look into that aspect and we didn't have uh a lot of information so we asked about depression and stuff but we didn't see anything there that cropped up and you have to remember that um just by depression is a bit of a tricky one because just by virtue of having a mental health condition by definition it's impairing your life your life sucks for having this condition in it on average and and so you always expect them to be a little at least a little bit more depressed and depression and anxiety were also the most common comorbidity in the clinic per se which again isn't unusual it's kind of just a standard just way how these things work um But we didn't delve into it. And of course you can unpack concepts such as emotionality. You know, you've got depression, you've got anxiety, you've got um, specifically in hoarding, you've got this enhanced attachment, uh, you've got this issue of of background in terms of, you know, do you have uh, stories and can you, you know, do you have adverse life events in this case? Um, All this can really, uh, you know, contribute to just what is going on there, and we don't know yet. That wasn't, you know, I didn't have the resources and the funds to do that as part of this study. Um, and it's kind of like, you know, I think it's true whenever you do a study, you, you end up with like, ah, I wish I'd only been able to answer, you know, all these other extra questions that got raised at the end. So so that's all I can say about emotion is I think, I think it's an important concept, certainly within the hoarding uh, disorder aspect of it, we know that that's kind of a massive thing in terms of the therapy and and how we we need to put some resources there to, to getting a better grip on it um one of the things i do want to flag as well is that sometimes people think of, of a condition like adhd and they think oh it's all about either hyperactivity or impulsivity or or all these kind of you know i was talking about concentrating and planning and organizing all these kind of mental abilities um one of the things that came out uh, almost inadvertently, because a lot of the questionnaires that I use, it comes from my background in OCD, where we just, you know, you just run these things and they make sense in a certain context when you're asking from a certain perspective. But when you start administering them to people that outside of the category or, you know, the domain in which they were used, um, they take on a different meaning. And so I ran, I think I mentioned, I ran uh, questionnaires about perfectionism and as part of that, there was, for example, a subscale about doubts about action um, or whatever. And that makes total sense for OCD and hoarding literature, where, where this you know OCD is, is literally called a disorder of doubt. <laughs> and it, it manifests in a particular way. You ask people whether they doubt themselves. Now, unexpectedly, the people with ADHD, they weren't high on perfectionism per se, um, that's not a thing in, in the ADHD literature, and it probably doesn't need to be. I mean, it's, it's justifiably not a thing. But when it came to doubt, doubts about action, uh, people with ADHD were off the charts. And then when you think about it, they have been, you know, by virtue of having ADHD, you know that you're not as well put together as maybe the next person, or you don't behave as put to, well put together as you could because you have this condition. And that means you've granted it's a developmental disorder. So you've had this since you were very young. Uh, and that means that, you know, people have second guessed you, you have ended up second guessing yourself, not because like in OCD, it's part of the condition. It's part, it's sort of part and parcel of, of how the disorder manifests. It's more, it's a result of having ADHD that now you question your abilities because th- that's part of what the disorder has caused you to do. So you end up showing a, a, a higher value in a questionnaire, or, or you know, on this psychological mechanism. But the reasons why it happens are completely different. And that's kind of a, again that that idea of crossing over um, and and having an emotional component in ADHD, but but for completely different reasons.
1: Yeah, that's so impressive about uh, you know people like you that do human research it's you know you have so many more factors to think about and that's really impressive when when um like real (laughs) significant results come out because you know in mice when you do stress tests and so on um under different conditions it's really hard to see real differences between groups sometimes so I feel it's it's really impressive what you do with uh, and uh, to go through all this data. It's, um and that's really interesting to know. Um, that and another interesting thing that maybe brings us a little bit off topic that I wanted to ask is when I saw, you know, when I see hoarded relate hoarding related um researches. I don't know if you know about this, um, I read about the tunnel vision syndrome when people grow up with scarcity and they get into, maybe uh, they lost their jobs or something, financial distress comes or some other distress comes and, um, Based on this tunnel vision effect, they also tend to hoard and make really bad financial decisions is it also very common in people with ADHD and hoarding that they make very um not very good decisions in terms of you know financial situations and other situations?
0: Well, I I think nobody knows yet. I think I'm safe to say we don't know. Nobody's looked at it systematically. Um I I think again it's unpacking that and and, and trying to, you know, by definition. You know, challenges in decision making are part of the phenotype of ADHD. That that's part of it. So so let alone, you know, how that interacts with adverse life events. Adverse life events, you know, be it financial or or something else, make everything worse. They make practically every mental health condition worse. They're they're you know by definition, it's a massive stressor. So so unpacking a question like that is probably you know, is it specific in ADHD that, that the mechanisms there work differently? I don't know. I certainly don't know. I mean, I will say in terms of, of what you're doing um, at this mechanistic level, that I think it's really important to, when, when you're looking at any condition, so, you know, you, you specifically mentioned OCD, which again, ironically, is actually not specifically part of this study, but is, is kind of in the background. Um, you know, looking at something like OCD, you've got lots of levels of, of analysis so, you know, I, I, I've been talking about, you know, information we gather from the patients directly and, and what they say in support groups and what you see in clinic. Um, but that's just one aspect. Of course, you can look at, at their cognitive behavior. So, you know, how they actually do an objective tests, which may or may not match, uh, you know, what they say about themselves. And we know, for example, in OCD, it doesn't match. Um, and then we can look at the brain structure. We can look at brain function. We can look at neurotransmitters like dopamine that you mentioned. Um, and again, we can drill into these different levels of analysis. Uh, and, and, you know, it's almost like if you're trying to, to understand this, be it the condition, be it one aspect of the condition, you've got to, it's almost like you've got to throw every level of analysis into it because they all matter and they all have something to bring to the table but it's a lot of information and it's all kind of really complicated.
1: Yeah, I agree. It's a lot of information. I feel like, do you think an AI would get better through it? (laughs) Putting all these hundreds of papers together and making like connections. I know there has to be a human and looking over it and looking, you know, what actually makes sense and whatnot, but, how how are we going to get through all this data you <laughs> keep um putting out and and putting into a bigger picture i know this is like a very general and off the topic question
0: but i've been asking yeah. myself <laughs> i mean other others have commented on it it's not it's not something that I, I think probably many people that listen certainly if they if they deal with science even tangentially you know there's been an explosion of data almost i mean it's almost it's really funny you you hear talks and they say oh whatever the topic is and like they'll show a graph of how many papers were published you know 20 years ago and you can see that the number goes up and that's pretty much true for every topic on the face of the planet um because there, there is an explosion of of, of data and of, of inquiry and you know more people there's almost 10 billion of us so obviously the more people are doing more stuff um so yeah it has now increasingly it, it's Obviously, we need new data because there's chunks of, of information that are just not there, and somebody needs to go and, and, and find the data that can answer them. But it's increasingly a challenge of how do we assimilate, accumulate, integrate the data we already have. Um, and I, you know, people are discussing this. I don't know that anybody's got a, a, a viable solution right now or in the near future. Maybe AI or you know some some kind of of, of process like that can contribute um, you know crowdsourcing but then again how do you integrate across so many different levels myself personally one of the things that sorry i i kind of try and do um, and again it, it can be seen in kind of you know my publication record which can which kind of looks like it's all over the place is is try to integrate those different levels of analysis that means that you know i I do neurocognition. You know, I'm I'm happy to read uh, cognitive papers, clinical papers, behavioral papers, but I also do you know looking at the brain, brain structure, brain connectivity, looking at functional stuff. So I'm I'm happy to to do that or you know read it, collaborate with people so that I speak that language. So you know. And the same goes for animal research so so i've actually been very fortunate to collaborate with people who do animal research i don't do it myself but i i work sufficiently closely with them that you know it's a collaborative effort i mean you know, why are the animal paradigms the way they are it's it's because i said you know it would never work like that you have, you know in a human we do it this way so you have to think of it slightly differently from the animal uh literature uh and and the same you know why some of my tasks are the way they are it's because that way it would make more sense when you translate it into the animals so so i think there is a lot that an individual researcher can do and that's learn the different languages learn you know you're comfortable in your domain whatever it is and it's going to be a huge domain with tons and tons of information coming at you left right and center and every day there's like another 200 papers they get published that are really interesting but um learn the languages of the other somewhat relevant but not exactly the right you know your domain so that when you have those conversations with people it's not you know there can be a meaningful exchange of information i love that you're saying that
1: (laughs) because i'm the same way i'm way more probably all over the place because currently i'm doing stem cell research um so (laughs) but um I totally agree. Uh, it's, uh, there's still this, I, I don't know if you ever had that pressure, but that um, professors, tenured professors told me, you can't be all over the place anymore. You have to be known for one specific thing or people won't give you grants and it's harder for you to publish in high impact journals if your name is not associated with one specific topic in, in, in neuroscience so and i really um, couldn't bring myself to be that
0: way <laughs> I, so first of all historically right we look at some of the people that, that that are considered you know you know i'm not not putting us in the same category but you've got people like leonardo da vinci and and you know uh, father of evolution you know darwin you've you've got people and and one of the things people say about them is that they were very broad in their interests they didn't just do one thing they read they they interacted they had a spiritual side they had a this they had to that people are can be very well rounded rather than you know drill down into one thing and and I've been very fortunate to be exposed to to people that that did successfully span different areas and and you know looking at my c v so i am sort of in a, in a fortunate position where I've kind of I, I do what I want. <laughs> I've taken myself out of the game. And, you know, I, I ask questions I want to ask. And I, I look at research because I generally find it interesting. And to a degree, I do overstretch I do. I do sort of, you know, write papers where the literature is is completely not overlapping with the literature of another paper that I've, I've written. So, you know, it's, it's a lot of energy to, to go and read and understand and, and you know, discover this other huge area of expertise. But um, but I think there's there's value in everything. There's value in people that drill down and know one topic incredibly well. And again, bearing in mind that there's these topics keep expanding and the knowledge keeps ballooning up like crazy. But if everybody was like that, then you'd miss something in terms of human knowledge. And then if there's someone like me that comes and, you know, I have interest in OCD, and I have interests in hoarding disorder, and I have interest in ADHD, and I actually have been fortunate to work on drug addiction. Um, so so I can see maybe links that some other people wouldn't necessarily see because they haven't, you know, spanned or, or taken the, the time to read things from such disparate literatures. And even within psychology, you know, there's so many, these clinical journals, there's neuroscience journals, there's cognitive experimental journals, there's animal journals. So, so when you say, you know, you wanna drill down and become an expert in X, well, X is too big. You can't be an expert in X unless you're almost practically superhuman anymore. So, so just do what you want, do what's natural to you. But maybe that's coming from a place where, where, yeah, I have, I have a job and I don't have to worry what's what's well, hopefully I don't have to worry what's around the corner until they dissolve the university. Um, So, so we shall see. So, yeah, but, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't think there's one way to succeed in science, like surely, surely there should be different approaches and for different people to succeed in different ways.
1: Yeah I I love everything you've said and uh, I agree and yeah it's uh, it's been such a pleasure talking with you it's uh it's amazing <laughs> that um, Great. you have a lot of views that I share but not because of that but your research is really interesting and um, yeah you you have uh, very interesting uh views on things and uh, you're perfect for the science society because we talk like the um, this place I mean I started doing coming to Clubhouse during the COVID times it was just entertaining but the idea is to um, to bring all kinds of scientists from all different um, uh, backgrounds together and listen to each other you know we have basic physics topics quantum mechanics and and more applied like yesterday we had um about carbon capture um a speaker and then we have neuroscientists and and psychologists and so we we try to bring together all kinds of scientific topics and uh, it's been really an interesting journey so my guess would be that you would enjoy this year too, and you came and hopefully you enjoyed this room. Oh, we have Soil Um, hi Soil. I don't know, Sharon, Do you still have time for one more question from from sure, the
0: audience? Sure, few more minutes, and then I do have to go. But yeah, sure, go for okay, it. Okay, sure.
2: Hi. Thanks. Um. Thank you for the interesting topic and. Uh, So I have a kind of question or kind of speculation uh, which uh, makes sense also after what you explained but I don't know if there's time for that. I just briefly mention it. That uh, is, I want to know if this kind of link, uh, this kind of um, variable is um, explored enough and that's uh, chronic pain, uh, especially for example during development. Mm, well, when I searched a bit, yeah, there are links uh, between basically any variable, I think. But um, I think it, it could be um, kind of um, something that kind of links uh, different aspects. Of course, it requires uh, investigation, or maybe I uh, haven't like. Really, really surveyed. Um, yeah, I've studied neuroscience, but it was a diff- completely different area. It was uh, computational neuroscience. But maybe, for example, a phenomenon like this can be can explain, uh, for example, why men uh, difference between men and women. Uh, maybe like dopamine and uh, I don't know. Uh, in Im- imaging studies, stuff like. Like that, uh, I guess um, chronic pain is difficult to find uh, to be found in imaging. I'm not sure,
0: but um, I'm
2: saying, can this be a kind of viable uh, hypothesis?
0: So I'm not entirely sure I follow it, but what I will say is, is you know, when we think about it at the level of an individual, right? So ultimately, there's going to be an individual who has some kind of mental health. Condition or symptoms that they're complaining, and they're going to have some physical aspects. For example, chronic pain. um, Then the question is, you know, do they feed into each other? Are they part and parcel of the same phenomena? Are they necessarily part of the same phenomena or different aspects? Um, I think we're really far away from being able to, at least I am, uh, to give a a cohesive, intelligent answer there. I guess I would just I don't know. But what I will say is that we talked. uh, before about this idea of looking at different levels of analysis and spanning them either through, you know, you becoming an expert in in 20 different things or or through learning the language of the other experts and and collaborating or exchanging ideas and feeding into for sort of a bit of a more, I guess, uh, cohesive or or holistic view of of what the science is telling us about a particular uh, condition or mechanism or what have you. Um, or symptom, but you can also take this holistic approach of breaking down barriers, and you can actually invert it to the level of the individual. So rather than understand a domain or or something like that, you can say, okay, I've got a person with a particular condition. So let's say I've got a person here who's uh, who has OCD, or has hoarding, or has ADHD, or has doesn't matter what they have, they have something, uh, and it has a label. So let's say they have OCD, o- 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 And then you start to talk to the individual and you can see that they have their psychosocial aspects. So, you know, they have maybe familial components, maybe you can, you know, they start talking about their parent having similar symptoms and, you know, maybe their sibling does or doesn't. They talk about their history, they have traumatic life events, and we know that that can influence brain structure and so forth. Now, one of the things that that we know is that the immune system uh, can play a, a hefty role in um some mental health conditions where increasingly there's evidence for that um certainly you know pain can can feature as as another level we know people you know irritable bowel syndrome and the biome we know there's interactions between your gut and your mental health uh sleep we know that you know i'm sure all of you have have had a chance where you know you haven't slept for a couple of days very well and and life seems that much more crazy and difficult to navigate and it can go about both ways so now comes like the scientific approach of okay how do we break it down is it that people with this condition have you know impaired sleep because they have the condition is it that people who have impaired sleep are more likely to end up developing particular conditions because it's a stressor is there something in the mechanism that's not working that you know underlies both is it an epiphenomena? you know it's sleep it's, it disrupts everything um so so taking that approach you can again look at 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 the individual from a holistic perspective look at all the mechanisms that are at play in an individual and say okay what matters here. So I would say chronic pain definitely would would be one thing to look at just like irritable bowel syndrome but I can't speak to any mechanisms because I don't know.
2: Yeah actually um irritable bowel syndrome and IBD were actually um also an, an idea that kind of uh led to this other idea of uh, chronic as, uh, pain aspects but thank you yeah it just requires uh can we, we cannot right? tell now yeah of course yeah. thank you
0: so yeah if you go into an ocd clinic and you start looking at how many people complain about irritable bowel syndrome it's going to be a lot more than you know what you'd see outside the clinic at least i think there's preliminary evidence for that
2: yeah yeah that's that makes sense. Actually, Yeah, OCD, for example, there was this film Aviator that uh, this guy um, had o- OCD and um, he had also lots of plane crashes. Yeah, this is just one example, but this is where the idea came from. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Sharon, for this wonderful room. And I hope you come back sometime, maybe with research updates, uh, or maybe um, listening to some of our guest speakers. I really appreciate it. It was wonderful meeting you and uh,
0: thank you so much. Great. Well, thank you for having me and uh, it's been a really nice experience. And uh, if you're listening to this later, thank you for listening. <laughs> so thank yeah, you. Yeah. For
1: this time of the day, we had actually quite a high attendance, we had like 64 people. And I know that. Uh, our club members that can't make it at the they will listen to it and i'll share the the recording with you in an email once i have it so thanks again enjoy the rest of your evening and um i hope we'll see you back or hear you back (laughs) someday soon thank you
0: great so thank you everyone and uh yeah enjoy the rest of your day wherever you are on the planet and uh thank you
1: everyone in the audience for coming and um for being here and listening learning with us. So if you like um these type of um rooms, please follow the Club Science Society and um we have more rooms like this coming up tomorrow to t- this evening. We won we already have the room so we won't have a room, but tomorrow, so on Friday evenings, I try to keep um, the schedule open for more kind of a general round table discussion for everyone to participate. Um, will be as a starting discussion warm up about artificial creativity. There's a lot of interesting uh, research and, um, progress that came about from IBM, but also from other companies. And um, yeah, please come and participate. What do you think about artificial creativity and also other science news? We will also talk about other related science news. And, um, <clears throat> and then on Saturday at 1pm EST, we have Dr. Marco Pettini. He is a physicist from Italy. He's uh, working in France and he will talk about this really interesting recent paper, Long Distance Electrodynamic Intermolecular Forces. And then on Sundays we have like weekly recap rooms where we shortly summarize what happened because we have a lot of different researchers coming throughout the week sharing. So we we have a, from now on on Sundays at 1 p.m. EST like a very short summary room uh, where we, if you miss the rooms, you can get a catch up without listening to hours and hours of recording. And next week we'll have a, a full schedule of very interesting research again. So, yeah, hope to hear everyone back. And thank you, everyone. Thank you, Sharon. And enjoy your day, morning, evening, wherever you are. That's okay, up close. Let's uh, sorry i didn't hear it go ahead go talk. sorry i sorry i jumped in a bit late
2: on the stage but what i was wondering if is there is any diet or nutrition indication for hdhd because of the gut connection
1: that's an interesting question i don't think um dr maureen uh, will to address this today, but um, we'll have uh, more microbiome rooms coming up. And we had a researcher that found the connection between anxiety and the microbiome here. It was a very interesting study that she did. Um, uh, I can share that study with you if you would like and for um, the recording. It's not um, hoarding or ADHD, but it's kind of an indicator that there is some sort of connection, but which mental health disorders are directly affected and which not is interesting to see, but we know that like anxiety maybe states uh, could contribute to making maybe the disease more, uh, like worse, so it's a very interesting question. Thank you. Yeah. Because the keto, I think it was developed to help uh, children with autism, aspect, right? Uh, that that um, the microbiome influences autism um, uh, severity?
2: Yeah, and
1: apparently works very well with children with autism. Ah, And
0: their behavior.
1: Interesting. Maybe you can back show me, and we can make a room about it. That's really maybe invite the researcher also. That would be really interesting. Thank you for mentioning that. Okay. Thank you, everyone, and I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone.